And so this morning we're continuing our series, 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to really be in, in about four verses. Um, if you got the email, you probably saw that we're going to finish this chapter, but uh, in reading this, I recognize that the verses 18 uh, through 21 uh, really is Paul's pivot from one argument to the next. And so next week, we're going to get into uh, why Paul mentions how he's going to come to uh, the Corinthian church. But uh, really, I want to focus our attention on 14 through 17. And it reads as follows. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And all the church said, amen. You all may be seated. I had an entire breakdown of how I thought that this uh, text was going to flow and the things that I wanted to communicate. And um, it was literally in the moment in between getting up here and singing that song that the Lord um, had a different set of plans. Um, Today, I'm going to talk about what may be um, obvious to many of us, but what is a real concern, I think, in the church as a whole, and that's our understanding of obedience. I think in, in, in many respects, what we will see in this text and what we see going on in the Corinthian church is that um, in many ways, we've allowed Christianity to become much more of an intellectual exchange of information than an actual acting out of obedience to what God has actually said. So much so that I think it'd be fair to coin the term uh, latchkey Christianity because for many of us, what we found is that uh, we operate in a sense of freedom, uh, at least what we would define as freedom, um, which is a faith being formed in complete isolation and YouTube information. For many of us, we came into faith through uh, a preacher or a sermon or an individual who shared with us uh, about what it means to follow Christ. But I think over time, in, and maybe even in our disappointments, what we find is that we've become isolated to the point to where we no longer have given authority to other people to speak into our lives. We live in a day and age where uh, for many of us, you may have heard the, say, the, the slogan or the saying or the mantra of our culture uh, that it's my life and I can do as I please. Uh, not only that, you may have heard uh, one of the poets of the day uh, who, who coined the phrase or the lyrics, um, uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. And we laugh in jest, but in practice, we act as if those things are true. That the culture as a whole has convinced us that, um, that no one should be able to tell us about our life or how we should live it. That we are the captain of our ships. 
And as a result, even in the church, we, uh, I think we've grown to have this allergy when it comes to authority because we only understand authority in terms of control and not care. And, and, and the truth about it is, is that there are legitimate reasons for there to be a distrust of authority. That you may have indirectly or directly heard of cases where leadership or individuals in the church have lived in a certain way as to uh, create or cause harm to other people. There's no shortage of media attention or footage that especially in Western Christianity that when a church or when a pastor or a leader falls in any particular way, that's front page news. What if they were to proclaim the message of the gospel that that gives no there? Those are not things that we give any attention to. Because we the world likes to prop up examples of people who have not met the standards and therefore have caused harm and therefore have fed and allowed the enemy to plant seeds of suspicion amongst all leaders and not just those individuals. We. As a ministry, what we found is that uh, many of you who have come to join uh, this church and become members have come from other churches where you've seen moral failures of leadership, where you've experienced harm uh, or, or, or had um, unmet expectations in such a way that let you, left you devastated and, and, and fearful to be able to entrust yourself to anyone else. And so what we've done is we've put up these guardrails that say, I will come and sit and hear a preacher but I won't go as far as to allow you to pastor me. If I'm honest, we as leaders, we know we operate from a deficit. We don't enter into dialogue or relationship on even ground. We're not often extended the, uh, extended the benefit of the doubt or trust because there's such deep wounds within us that failed to look at us as human beings, but only someone who can serve to meet a spiritual need. Paul is writing to a church who had a problem with his apostleship. They had a problem with uh, how uh, the apostle Paul presented himself. They had a problem with how he preached. They had a problem with even if he had the same authority as the other apostles. Their preferences, uh, their preferences of eloquence preaching um, of a few were far more um, or, or seen as way more important than the unimpressiveness of Paul in his ministry. And so Paul begins here with the line, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Uh, authority is this. It is simply the power or right to give orders to make decisions or enforce obedience. That is what authority is. And so I think what we have to do first is we've got to be honest about where we sometimes find ourselves is that we don't have a problem with all authority. We just have a problem with God's authority. You see, uh, we're, when we're driving down the freeway, we know what the speed limit is. And we know that if we go above that speed limit, we may have the unfortunate case of seeing those blue and red lights flashing up behind us and pulling us over to the side, right? And so in, a, in, in, a, in, in an effort to avoid the consequences of breaking the law, we drive the speed limit. 
Because we respect authority. When you want to maintain um, your job, you follow the directions and the rules and the way in which the employer, your employer has the things he's put in place in order to maintain or keep your job, correct? Because we follow authority. When you desire to remain unified in marriage, you and your spouse, you submit to one another in certain things because you realize that that other person has my best interest into mind and that my, me submitting to them in certain decisions, it maintains the unity in the marriage, right? Because we don't have a problem of authority. But when it comes to God and his church, I think we have a hard time digesting this idea of being under an authority. That God is a God of order. And in him being a God of order, he implements or institutes this level of his authority in order to eliminate chaos. Paul says, but, but, but here's the problem. I think that we, will only, we only understand authority or the thing that we need to see here is that we need to see spiritual authority as a means of God's care for us and not his control of us. As a means of God's care for us and not his control of us. Where do I get that from? Paul says that um, I, did, I did not write this or I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. What I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, is that when we are to think about authority, I want us to see it through the lenses of God's grace in our lives. That there is a God who knows us so well that he will enter into the space of any place where we find ourselves walking away from him or walking not in accordance to who, what he has called us to do. And he will speak to that in a way that is not intended to shame us, but is intended to correct us. You see, if we only understand love as the expression of soft, meek, gentle speech then we will miss out on the ways in which God loves us so much that he is okay with us not being liked by him or him not being liked by us. I think some of us, we've never experienced that kind of love. That when a person sees you going astray and wandering away from God, that they'll step in the gap and say, you know what, I want to speak directly. Your actions are putting you in danger. And because we have not experienced that type of love, we often misinterpret. We misinterpret God's means of caring for us as his desire to control us. Let me break that down a little bit more. Where do our distortions of authority actually originate from? We've got to go back to the garden. Genesis 2, God exercises authority over Adam in in the fact that he gives boundaries as a means of protection for Adam and Eve. He says in 2.15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Fast forward, Genesis 3, the serpent appears to Eve. And what he does is he plants the seeds of suspicion to say, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree? Did God really, is what God has said about the outcome or the consequences of your actions really true? He 
allows Eve or he plants this idea in Eve's mind regarding God's authority in her life in the form of a question so that he can convince her that God's restrictions aren't about her care, but they are about him controlling her. And it's in that moment that Adam and Eve, they exchange the wisdom of God for the wisdom of man. And as a result, sin enters into the world. You see, there's a thin line between care and control. And that thin line has to do with motivation. Care is motivated by selflessness and love. Care seeks to build up and to encourage. Care places the well-being of the individual over their own well-being. But control is about selfishness. Control is rooted in insecurity and fear. It's this idea as though I have to use everything and anything in order to maintain control just to make you or keep you subservient to me. And here's the thing, y'all. What we believe about God's motives will influence the way we interact with him. If you see God as only lawmaker and not father... It will always be a tug of war between you and him. You always think that when God gives you commands that he's making suggestions for you and not telling you that, yo, you need to do what I say do. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Paul wants to make clear that my intent for you, church, is not to shame you because shame doesn't last but it's to warn you of the dangers that we can fall into in allowing the distractions of this life to divert us towards a life that God never intended for us to have. What do I mean by that? If you've walked with Jesus long enough, then you and I both know that there are good things that can grab a hold of our attention but can also distract us from actually doing what God has called us to do as his people. That marriage is a good thing. But if marriage becomes an ultimate thing to where every decision and all things that we do are are filtered and sifted through that one institution, then we may find ourselves unwilling to do hard things or to have hard conversations or to lead in such a way where comfort and convenience are are, are not the only attainable goal. Paul says that I don't want you to see God warning you about a way of living that these other Christian guides are promoting. Think of what's promoted in our culture of the day. Think about what fills so many of our bookshelves. Think about the life that's promised to us as if God made the promise. How much of our expectations Or our disappointments are really just built on us expecting things from God that he actually never promised us to begin with. The first, the last, the uh, verses 6 through 13, Paul lists out, he says, look, I see your life. Corinthian church, I see y'all are flexing, y'all are flossing, y'all are living this life that seems as though the kingdom of God has has already come. You've got the fame. You've got the stage, you've got the platform, you've got the resources, you've got the money, you've got everything that earthly status can provide. But I feel the need to warn you, church, that you can either live for this life or you can live for the life to come. 
That is the choice and decision that you and I, that we have to make. Will we hold up as greater and as more important and more valuable this idea of, of what God wants best for me is a, my best life now? Or will we realize that the cross of Jesus Christ is not one to just simply be admired, it's one to pick up and carry? Paul is having to uh, deconstruct some of these distortions that we have into us thinking that God has ill intent towards us. And what's true about you and I is that interpretation matters. That, that, that one person can say the exact same thing to two separate people and both of them leave with two separate, completely different interpretations. It's the idea of, as a parent, uh, if, if somebody were to see me instructing my adult children in the way in which they should go and giving advice around uh, what, what their, their life after college should look like, one person would look at that and say, man, you don't trust your child's independence. You don't trust in your a child's ability. He's grown now. He should be able to make decisions on his own. You're not trusting in that, and therefore you are being a bad parent. Well, as one, another person can look at that same thing and say, you know what? What you're showing is such a deep care and concern and love for your child that all you simply want to do is to um, um, give them counsel and advice that ultimately leads to their success. The same action and statement can lead to two different interpretations. And why is because our interpretations are often filtered through the lenses of our own experiences, our beliefs, our emotions, and our preferences. We have these triggers in us. And when we've been hurt in the past, that a person doesn't even have to do the exact thing that hurt us. But if they show any resemblance, any, any closeness to what that pain caused us, we will immediately put up a barrier and we will react and respond in defensiveness because we don't want to feel that way again. God's warning to us, y'all, is a sign of his grace, but it's also a testament to his presence with us. It's a testament that he's going to stick with us. He's going to shepherd us. He's going to walk with us even when the things that he has to say move us into a different direction. Paul continues, and he goes on with this, which would be my second point, that we need to see spiritual authority as a part of God's discipling of us. He says, "For excuse me, you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere or in every church. The one thing that Paul does not emphasize here is to follow his words. He says to follow his ways. And I think that what we need to do is we, we need, as a church, we need to uh, recapture and reconnect with the idea that what Jesus has called us into is his life. He has called us to pattern our lives 
uh, pattern our lives in the way in which he himself lived. And so what does that look like for you and I? Why is Paul saying, yo, I've got to, I got to, I know y'all have countless, countless instructors, but you don't have many fathers. I, we have to be careful of not reading in the text. Paul is not trying to exert some type of authority over the Corinthian church as if God had not already given him that authority or that he had lost that authority to begin with. Paul is not concerned with their recognition of his authority. What Paul is trying to help them to see is that it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that their faith was, was birthed. And not only that, he says that I have followed so closely in the footsteps of Jesus Christ that, I, that they are worthy of imitating me. Paul is not perfect by any means. But he understands that our faith was one passed down to us. I think that's a disconnect for some of us. Because we... Um, depending on where you grew up, depending on what church you were part of, depending on if you even grew up in the church, sometimes there's a disconnect or an unhealthy view of tradition as if they serve no purpose and no, have no value in us understanding the faith in which we were given. He says countless instructors here, guides or guardians. What does that mean? Uh, right now what Paul wants to do is he wants to differentiate for us the matter in which he cares and the matter in which the leaders or the people who were the, um, the factionalists, per se, uh, in that time. And he says that uh, guardians or guides were actually slaves or paid attendants who accompanied the child for the purpose of protection, guidance, and general supervision of behavior. They would travel to and from school or on occasion when a parent was absent. They were often caricatured as stern, ignorant, and uncaring taskmasters. Think about that for a second. That the church had attached itself to people who on the face or at face value seemed to be interested in their growth and development, but, but all the while were simply interested in boosting their platform. He says, you've attached yourself to people who are leading you not to lay your life down, but to pick your life up. Leading them towards what may seem like good things. And it, it, it begs us to ask ourselves the question, is do we have a faith worth following? I've had to wrestle with this text because Paul is not just saying, hey, I think you should. He's saying, I urge you to. I urge you to. I urge you to follow in the steps of Jesus, not just simply recite the words of Jesus. And I think this is so important for our church, y'all, as a young church. It's so important for us to understand the power of discipleship. That the need for you and I is not simply to hand people books, but it's to say it's an invitation of giving authority to somebody else to actually care for us, to actually tell us when we're wrong, to actually walk with us through hard times, to actually submit ourselves to. Who in your life can you point to who you've given authority to say, hey, if you see me tripping, I need you to tell me. 
Who in our lives have we given authority to to say, hey, um, when you see me at my worst, I trust that you'll be there at the bottom and help me climb back to the top. That this is the heartbeat of what God invites us into, that he's not using his authority to control us. He's using authority simply as a means for our growth. That when you give yourself away and you say, you know what, I don't know what's best for my life. I don't always know what this thing should actually look like. And I'm going to go to my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm going to say, I'm going to seek out, hey, can you help me learn how to be a father? Can you learn, help me learn how to be a godly man? Can you help me learn what it looks like to be a godly wife or to be a godly friend? That God is, is only causing, or all God is only calling us to, to walk with him under his authority in such a way that we, may, we, that we would look more like Jesus. I had to ask myself the other day, say, how, much, how many of my friendships, uh, uh, really on a, day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis, do we experience confessing our sins to one another too? Is that a part of any of our relationships? Because I think it's easy for us to settle into talking about what we've learned, talking about sports, talking about our interests and our hobbies. But we're missing out on the healing that God actually has for us, found in one another. Paul says, I urge you to imitate me, and this is why I've sent Timothy to you, that he is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you about my ways. Paul is saying the onus of responsibility for our spiritual growth doesn't just fall on me. That I'm sending somebody else who knows my ways and knows Jesus' ways that can model to you what it looks like to follow him faithfully. Obedience for us all is going to mean that we are going to have to lay down our lives. To lay down our lives for other people. And if we're honest, that's easier said than done. It goes against and defies all that is natural for us to lay our life down. Which means that there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost. And why is there a cost? Because it may mean that in, your, uh, that in our ventures financially to stack up a bigger bag, that God may call us to say, I don't want you to only be concerned about your pocketbook growing but I want you to seek ways in which you can serve the least of these and testify that you don't believe that the riches that you can earn are here are greater than the riches you can get in heaven. It may cause us, church, to have to be in jobs where we will have to stand as a witness and a, testif- and a testifier to the goodness of God and what he says when it goes against or puts in or, or even puts um, uh, at risk the opportunity for us for advancement. Following Jesus will cost us socially. It will cost us financially. It will cost us 
emotionally. But the thing that we have to decide is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Paul is saying, therefore, I I want you to understand this church. I want you to look at my example of humility, and I don't want you even to just see me as the example. I want you to be reminded of the example that Jesus Christ himself modeled for you and I. Philippians 2, we see that this Jesus, this one who Paul has patterned and fashioned his life for, is the one who ultimately laid down his life for people who would ultimately place him up on the cross. And it was this Jesus who left his heavenly home and incarnated himself and coming down to us. That points to the reality that the scriptures will say that he was obedient all the way up until the point of the cross, even to death. Think about this Jesus in the garden. This Jesus who, when face to face with the will of God, says, Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. Father, if there be any other way, if this cup can pass from me, well, yet, Lord, let your will be done. There's this movement in the text that is pointing us to Paul wanting us as a church to recognize that, the, that God is building a people who are under his authority, but also are committed to, their, to one another's growth. And we are committed to one another's growth. And in the process of us trusting God in this way, we can enter into the fray, the challenges, we can enter into the difficulties that come, the messiness that come, when we are literally walking alongside, living life together with one another, And we come to the crossroads where we have to ask the question, am I willing to obey Jesus at all costs? Am I willing to obey Jesus when it's difficult? Am I willing to obey Jesus when I don't agree with what he's asking me to do? Am I willing to obey Jesus where it can cost me everything? Am I willing to obey Jesus when it may cost me this relationship? Paul doesn't just say that this is a specific thing that he gives to one church, but he says that that this teaching is present and evident in every church. That us cornerstone. God is calling us to go back to the basics. He's calling us to say, it's not about the flashy lights. It's not about how many people are sitting in the pew. It's not about how renowned or how great this church may see in the eyes of people. It's not about those things. It's about God's people getting back to a place where we actually obey. Where we see obedience as the primary identifier that we actually belong to Jesus to begin with. What I believe that we are are being called into, y'all, is a place where we just have to first admit 
We have to first be willing to confess, God, I've missed it. God, I've missed it. I thought what you wanted for me is just to listen to a lot of sermons. I thought what you wanted for me is just to be able to recite a lot of scripture verses. I thought what you wanted for me is just to be able to speak the Christian slang and fit in. But God is saying, no, what I want from you is your obedience. And I want you to see obedience as a pathway into joy, into you experiencing me fully and knowing who I am. That our confidence in who God is comes from as we obey and as we see the word of God lived out. That, we, that we're able to see that God is true. That God doesn't lie. That God is not, doesn't need to manipulate us into more behavior modification. That God is able to transform us. And that that transformation comes as we obey his word. As we trust in his ways. This is the most simplest but the hardest thing to put into practice. Because we, like, we believe that large doses of information is the same thing of actually believing the information that we're, that we're taking in. It will be your belief is manifested in you actually doing what you know. I don't have much more than that, y'all. Thank you, James. But if there's something that I want us to leave with, I want us just to ask the question. Who are we following? And who's following us? Who are we following? And who is following us? Because if we're following Jesus, then we should have other people who see us following Jesus that want to now follow us as we follow Jesus. I think for some of us, we're not walking with the Lord as close as we need to be. Which makes us reluctant of inviting anybody else to follow us. But there's grace. There's grace for you and I to say that this day, Lord, I want to turn away from those things and I want to turn towards you. That our God is one who says, if you seek me, you can find me. He's not hiding himself. He's just waiting for us to make the decision to come to him. And it's in our coming to him that he begins to show us that his authority over us, the authority that he puts in place, is simply meant to care for us, to help us grow, which ultimately means that we become more like Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would um, even now minister to our hearts. Show us the things that we're holding on to, Father. Show us the ways that we have positioned or established a way of living, Lord, that is outside of the manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will give us the strength and the courage, Lord, to confess and repent where need be. <coughs> But also give us the strength and courage to trust that your ways are far better than our ways. 
to trust that we don't have to lean on our own, under our own understanding of things, Lord, that you call us and you invite us into um, greater trust and dependence on you that might seem scary on the offset. But Father, it's in following you where we find that you remain faithful to us. That you say you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, as we learn obedience of faith, as we learn to not just be a hearer of the word, but doers of the word, Father, I pray that we would have growing confidence that you actually are who you say you are. That you're not a man that you should lie. That you don't even need our obedience, Lord, to give you value or significance, Father. You are everlasting, Lord. You are God in and of yourself, Lord. We can't add any value to you. But Father, you give us the opportunity to know you intimately, to be intimately known by you, and to know that your correction is not meant to harm us, Lord, but it is simply meant to keep us from harm. Oh, we see you as that type of gracious God. Would you see, would we see you as a keeping God, a sustaining loving God. I pray that we would interpret your love through the lenses of your word and not our emotions, not our own interpretations. They will be closely connected to who you have said you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. We thank you, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.